Today's conversation with the artist Alex. Mocha, mocha, woo! Yeah, that's his voice right there. Today's conversation did more for me in an hour when it comes to unpacking and envisioning a future for AI than I was capable of for a year on my own. And that's a combination of two things. The first is Alex's mystifying perspective on artistry, symbology, innovative use cases for AI art, market dynamics, the iconographication of the artist, and so much more. The other is that Alex has been working with the team at Koji, a forthcoming AI project which we'll talk about in more detail a few times in the podcast to help pioneer an entirely new mechanism for AI artistry. I'm talking a complete paradigm shift. That is, not the creation of an appetite for AI artworks themselves, but the creation of an appetite for AI models themselves. By turning the model, fine-tuned by artists into specific collaborative stylistic output generators, into the product, an entirely new art form is produced. The process is the art, packaged, then ported, then unwrapped by others to play with. We may legitimately be witnessing the birth of a true blue AI native art movement, one that could only be possible with this technology. And that, my friends, came into crystalline focus for me over the course of this episode. The possibilities inherent in this new paradigm are so vast that Alex and I, in our hour together, only barely scratched their surface. Just under that surface, we found enchanting questions about symbological proliferation, about what a market looks like, not for art, but for the mechanism of artistry itself, and about shifting cultural attitudes towards AI art in total. I am quite pleased to welcome you to this particularly bonkers and futuristic episode of Mocha Live with our guest, the inimitable Alec. I hope you enjoy. Good evening, everybody. It is 6.02 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in beautiful Brooklyn, New York. Welcome to the Mocha Live podcast. I will be your host today. My name is Max Cohen, and joining me for the Mocha Live podcast today, a very special guest also in Brooklyn. Uh, That would be the artist, illustrator, uh, member of Making It 24-7. I could probably list all sorts of different uh, titles that I could give you based on just the remarkable amount of work that you've done. Uh, That would be Alec. So, Alec, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Max. It's it's nice to be here. You know, we're actually in the same city, so it's kind of funny that we're like talking like this. But like, you're probably like less than five miles away from me. But I know um, if I got a good running start, I could probably throw a baseball through your window. Yeah. Um. If you think so, I'd love to see that. Get that on camera. Maybe someone else could. I couldn't. I'm an art writer. I'm not an athlete. So we have a lot a lot to get to today. Uh, the name of this podcast that I kind of threw off the top of the dome was The AI Beast Unleashed. If you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I can't stop asking people questions about AI because it just fascinates me. And specifically, I want to just explore as much as possible this place where AI meets artists and like, what does that mean for artists philosophically, thematically? Um, so you've been doing a bunch of work with Koji, um, as I understand it. So I was hoping you could take me through like when 
you kind of started to be interested in bringing AI into your work. And for those that don't know, Koji is kind of a forthcoming platform marrying artist work with AI. I don't want to do too much disservice to it because I'm not super well-versed in what it is, but it's very exciting. Alex, so just, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, like, yeah, origins of AI in your work. Uh, origins of AI in my work. Um, well, I just kind of want to start off with this fun little story. Um, I think I've just been, like, waiting for AI in my whole life, you know? I yeah. remember very vividly having these CDs and okay. um, and a DVD player, these blank CDs, and I would write on the CDs what I wanted to see and then put it mm-hmm. into my DVD player hoping that it would show up. And it never would, and it would, like, really drive me crazy. I'd literally spend an hour or two trying to figure this out. Uh-huh. And it never worked. Um, fast forward, I think the year is maybe 2019. There's all these like, uh, what do you call them? Google notebooks or something that people are like starting to use stable diffusion or like AI is starting mm-hmm. to pop up. I'm trying to get into it, but I don't think it's really working. Sometimes it works, but it's very um, hit or miss. I'm spending like hours trying to get one output. And um, a lot of times it fails. Um, so time goes on, you know, I see some of my friends figuring it out. But at that point, I'm more involved in just the creation of just digital art or just painting and so forth, expanding my practice. And then Mid Journey comes along and I'm able to kind of lean more into creating AI generated images. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, that whole boom happened, and things just got better, faster, quicker. And um, yeah. now I've been using Eden, which uh, serves as the AI engine for Koji. And yeah, shout um, out Gene Kogan, founder of Eden, friend of the yeah, pod. I just I just got off the phone with him, and he said to tell y'all what's up. Hey, what's up, Gene? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I've been very involved with it at this point. You know, I use it. I use it in my physical artwork, like my paintings. Like I project the AI and I just paint it. I riff off of it. Um, sometimes I just like cut it up and sample it in really intricate ways on Photoshop and create an entirely new composition and image from a few different outputs. Yeah. And then sometimes I'll throw it back in. You know, it's just like this, like, for me, I just feel like AI serves as like a sort of creative consultant collaborator engine, you know, like yeah. here's where I'm at right now. Take me to this next stop. Oh, I'm at the next stop. You're coming with me over here at this stop. You're going to give me a ride over there and I'll give you a ride to the next stop, you know, maybe with less yeah. stops, than that, but it's kind of like a give and take relationship. Well, I, I, so I'm so excited for this conversation because, you know, I think we've talked a lot as like a crypto art movement about artists who primarily work with AI and their output is AI and their process all takes place in AI. And this place that I think you seem to have come to, right, where it's like you have this illustrious kind of illustrative painting, drawing, physical art, and then digital processes, but this career and the style that is not meshed with AI, and then you're bringing AI into it. And then that place where those two things merge is where I think things get really groovy. You know, what's weird is I feel like my practice um, 
my drawings, my illustrations, the sort of frenetic energy that people say that I have, I think it's mm-hmm. so directly linked to kind of what AI is. You know, for so long, I kind of envisioned my workflow, my process as being almost autonomous or like artificially intelligent. Um, mm-hmm. Because I'm usually operating from a place of stream of consciousness. You know, I'm really into Carl Jung and mm-hmm. I, I feel like symbols and kind of just this element of doing these things unconsciously, but it being kind of reflective of sort of something that you're pulled in by or like whatever whatever natural forces led you up to that point you know i feel like that those themes are very powerful and have this sort of relationship with an artist working with ai like i think ai working with it kind of like it's all about that. It's because you kind of mirror yourself in a weird way. Sure. It's man of scene in like the in like this really direct and profound way. And I think just how I scribble and all that, like I think it's super like AI like. I don't know. I just wanted to get mm-hmm. that out there. It's been something I've been thinking about. No, I, I know what you mean. I, I think a lot about the Bader Bader Meinhof effect, which is like it's when you come upon a new piece of information and then you start to see it everywhere. Um, oh yeah, it yeah, yeah, keeps yeah. reappearing, right? Like yeah. this weird way that the universe has is just like reintroducing symbols to you constantly. So, like the other day, I learned about this woman named Jane Birkin, uh, who was this, I guess, fashionista. I'm not actually sure what her qualifications were or her job titles, so to speak. I think she was an actor. Actor. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. she, I guess, was friendly with the chief designer of Hermes, the Parisian fashion brand who started to make these bags for her. They're called Birkin bags or like these big, like practical bags. And I had just learned about what these were and that they're super hard to get. You know, Hermes saves them for like preferred clients, whatever they retail for like $250,000. And then um, I was in Paris a couple of days ago. I was walking through the cemetery, the Montparnasse cemetery. And I came upon this grave that was really ornately decorated. Uh, This person named Sergio Gainsbourg, who I'd never heard of was a French musician who it turned out had dated jane birkin for like 17 years and i was just walking through the cemetery and just come upon this guy and i'm like oh who's this that jane birkin reappears so i think that it's so interesting to bring that up with ai because it's almost like completely hyper speeding that process right it's going to keep introducing symbols and you know just random bits of iconography from its own memory and it'll it might just bring them up to you over and over again it's like hyper speeding or like somewhat hacking that process you know what i mean yeah absolutely and the funny thing is, like, whatever we create as a species or just as beings, it ultimately constitutes our essence. And mm. inevitably, we're kind of snowballing or, like, accelerating the momentum in which we have this dialogue with ourselves. And the ways in which we interface with our technology they're so um the feedback loop is is immediate so we're running with our mirrors holding hands something like that so this draws me into like a big topic of conversation that i wanted to get to which is like the power of like individually creating data sets so our friend bard ionson or bard jansen i'm sorry um bard what's up thanks for uh 
Thanks for being here. He asked, where do I find this Koji tool? Um, Koji hasn't been released yet, as far as I know. No. I know there's a big presentation on it at uh, NFT Paris this week. So I believe more information should be coming. But And correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, but the idea of Koji is that you have artists who are creating these individual data sets and then able to port those data sets outwards so that people can basically use these like very fine-tuned data sets of an artist's work to create things in their style. Do I have kind of the the gist yeah. right? Yeah, that's pretty well done. Um, along with the data sets, you know, there's these uniquely curated parameters and mm -hmm. um, workflows that the artist is creating to provide the user a certain experience of collaboration. So whatever that person makes with Koji, with that artist's model, um, it will kind of be indicative of that theme that the artist wanted mm -hmm. to uh, propose to whoever is like experiencing or using the model. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm working on mine still. I'm pretty excited about it. I'm starting to I'm starting to realize more about the different aspects and dimensions and capabilities of the technology concerning stable diffusion and um I will say that it's limitless really what can be done mm -hmm. but also I think there's certain layers that could be added um to really kind of push things forward and I think it will, it will look like the intersection of, te of different technologies. I'm looking at, looking at generative art now. I'm just kind of like, what would that look like over on this side? It's just because you had brought up this kind of like symbology, right? Where you're like continuously being introduced to different symbologies and the AI is producing these symbologies, right? It's like this hyperspeed introduction of imagery and ideology. And the thing that so interests me about individually data setting is just that there's an alternative to kind of this mass market every do everything AIs that are going to be taking in all information, right? Like your, you know, your mid journeys and your um dollies, right? Where you have no control over what's being put in or what's coming out because there's so much influence. And being able to control that influence as a layperson, especially someone like me who has no coding ability, like that's yeah. really exciting for me. Right to be able to fine tune exactly what is in this model, so I can then have some kind of a predictable way of discerning what's coming out, and B, like also being able to wrangle some of those images and the symbology in a way that maybe is repeatable or maybe allows me to like evolve on a theme, as opposed to just being, you know, at the mercy of way more information than I'm capable of understanding. So, you know, yeah, in lieu of using like these enormous unspecific. And I think accidentally homogenizing AI models, like to data set oneself or to data set for oneself or to just make a specific data set is like, it takes one's craft and it turns it towards, like it, it, it makes you responsible for the environment of something's creation as opposed to just the creation that comes out the other end. And like, do you see that as a prime benefit of like creating these individual data sets and producing these individual data sets? Or is there something I'm not seeing in the use of these like larger, less predictable, less specific models? I will say, um, I think it's ironic. I've heard this a few times that creativity is like when you have less or something. Like you have you have more of a you have you have more restrictions, right? Um mm -hmm. and I think if you are in a position where you can 
kind of create those parameters and the restrictions, then um, it it makes it so that you can more accurately direct and have more influence and control over something. And the this sort of um, spiraling sort of generative quality occurs when you have more control is that with more control, you can have even more control, but you can have more control when you have less. Um, and that throughout my life, philosophy wise, that's been something that I've been dancing with for quite some time. I'm not saying I'm necessarily a maximalist or anything, but the idea of chaos for me, it, it's very, um, I like the idea that I can pull from a lot of things, that there's energy and abundance, that I can look around and then pull from something else, or that there's maybe a lot of messages hidden within the orchestra. But um, recently, I've been thinking of the inverse of chaos, where you limit what you limit what you're operating with the medium i'd call it mm-hmm. and from there everything can go like you can you can go crazy so um yeah uh that's kind of what i've been thinking about recently it's like mediums i forgot what your initial question was sorry well no i, I like what where you're going with this you know any closed system at, will at some point turn into you know a chaotic system right because it will pr- proliferate based on its own like metrics it's just term we're talking in terms of like what exists in that closed system to begin with right oh yeah so i think it's best if i talk about maybe some of the models that i've made so far i've been trading models on my paintings and my drawings or just found images and sometimes i create these large data sets up to 20 images but interesting enough interestingly enough i realized that when i train a model on one image, you know, I actually, the the outputs become a lot stronger. Sometimes mm-hmm. they'll have even more of the elements of the original uh, information and images. And um, you can kind of express ideas a lot more um, rigorously that way. For example, I painted this picture maybe of like uh, somebody running, but I I trained the model on just that image. If I prompt with um, Eden that I want to see two legs in the sky, it will Mm -hmm. kind of like take the legs from that image, figure out like the language of it. And then from there, I can kind of create different different legs or like kind of similar style legs in the sky from that image that I painted of somebody running in the, you know, and I think that's really cool. But what becomes even cooler is now with Eden and with stable diffusion, like you can kind of control perhaps how or what sampler it's using or like the strength of like, how much it was relying on the initial image. And you can also upload a starter image in which Mm. it will kind of 
work with and kind of create a dialogue with that image. I don't know. It's just, it's so fun, but yeah, I realize no, this is fascinating. Yeah, I know. I, I'm trying to explain it so that those who are listening kind of feel compelled to try this out because I feel like stable diffusion should be at the front of this AI revolution because it's so powerful. It's so powerful. Um, and I can't wait to see other people using it. But it, it's such a redefinition of, I think, how most people are conceiving of AI, even just in this example you give, right? Because I think people see the model itself, whatever model you're using as the input and output, it is the be all end all. And the idea that you're like putting forth, right, that you can train a model on some, you know, a, a painting you made of someone running and thus be able to generate all these different legs, right, that you can then use these legs and put that into a different model right yeah. train a model now on something else right yeah. legs plus i don't know legs plus sidewalk right and now you're like you're using these models one after another and you're limiting or, or getting more specific with like individual elements of the artistry right and so you're going back and forth from model to model to model you're fine-tuning creating using that to then refine tune to then create more and i think that like seeing ai i mean obviously we have limitless possibilities before us that we haven't collectively i think really begun to internalize but seeing it not as like idea at the beginning ai in the middle and then output but as ai kind of inserting itself as a bit of the process over and over and over again in these different ways and then coming out on the other end eventually but a much more complex rube goldberg machine of ai models that i think is really really a challenge to what is like the collective idea of what people are doing with AI, especially like lay people who are not involved in kind of the artistic side. When they play around with it, they're just prompt generation. Here's my prompt. Here's the model. Boom. Here's an output. But this uh, is so much more radical and also yeah. allows so much more like unique expression. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just so over the moon about it. For me, it's a challenge to kind of um, understand people's disdain towards this technology. But then I come to terms with the idea that this is historic, you know. People hated probably the wheel when it first appeared. They're like, oh, witchcraft. I don't know. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, literally, like, that circle that we use and everything for, like... I think I think with, with art, it's always the case. Or it seems to me that it's always the case because it applies to photography. It applies to digital art. Now it applies to AI. That if people aren't able to grasp the craftsmanship right off the bat, then they just want to turn away from it, right? It's the same thing with, I mean, conceptual art and contemporary art of like the late 1900s, early 2000s. It's like when it's all ideas, it's the classic like, oh, you go into a museum and you say, I could do that, right? So you can't appreciate oh, yeah. the craft immediately. So you kind of just turn off from it. You know what's interesting as an example? I think Dadaism birthed the art movement of minimalism. And minimalism was at one point radical. And then it became kind of industry standard. I think that situation, to me, just shows how much um, the fickleness of like uh, society's expectations and acceptance of like new ideas. And then you see how that singular idea permeates through everything. And what was once deemed... Uh, an outsider thing or kind of like looked down upon becomes a part of daily life, you know? And I think that's 
it's the cycle and it's happening over again. Yeah. We, we can go even further back in art history. You know, if you, I, I think I bring this up, this example up too often, but you know, in like Europe in the mid 1800s, the idea of ideal craftsmanship of artistry was to adhere as close as possible to this like classical idea, right? You want people that are as realistic looking as possible forms. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's all about like idealism. Idealism is form of idealism of environment because the closer you could get to that, you can gauge skill via yeah. like one's ability to match that, like um, that sublime, right? The impressionists come along. They have no interest in that. They're just painting, you know, in all these radical styles with all these weird colors, you know, what they're seeing around them and the French salon specifically that was like in charge of, or had the largest influence in towards, in terms of like what was canon artistry just yeah. turned away from it altogether because it was just something radically new that did not fit with the accepted idea of what quality could be. Even though we look back on impressionism now, I think most people who love art or like experience art, they look at the impressionists and they say, this is the height of craft. Yeah. Even though at that yeah. point it was like, yeah, they were <laughs> not super jazzed about it. Isn't that so funny? It seems like we're always, we're also, we're always behind ourselves in some way. Mm. And then we put what was once behind in front of us. Um, it kind of just makes me wonder what's next. <laughs> well, I, I think I have an answer based on just what you've been talking about, right? Because yeah. when it comes to this kind of artistry that you're talking about, where you're like, you're data setting creatively, right? Not only in terms of what you're putting in the data set, but when you're deploying it and what the purpose of the outputs are. Well, then we start to get levels and levels away from what your average you know, uninitiated person is going to be able to do the average uninitiated person can go into Dolly, put in a you know, prompt and return an output, but using this technology in a way where you're, you know, interacting with all of these very data sets for the purpose, for these very specific purposes, and then building one on top of another. So you have this, like, I don't know, this edifice built of models and AI generations. There's very obvious and very advanced craft in that, that I think could turn people's attentions away from you know this perceived ease of the technology yeah yeah i think that's probably what most people are upset by is the fact that they think ai is just the thing to make work easy like they mm -hmm. i don't think tools are to be described as the things to make work easy more that they're the things to facilitate the process mm -hmm. of something like uh, the process of execution you know or enable mm -hmm. it you know um yeah for sure yeah i think easy is uh is a word that kind of got tainted or is it got a multitude of meanings with the advent of the industrial revolution and like the information age um I'm starting to wonder if easy was even a word maybe 400 years ago. <laughs> um, well, I think in this case, like easy is a bastardization of accessible. And I think people too yeah. often equate those two things because there's always going to be, you know, if you blow out the median of who can create work well, right, using whatever given tool, there's always going to be a top end of in anything that's going to be pushing the thing forward, using it in more and more complex ways in a race either with each other or with themselves yeah um i'm trying to think of an example of 
technology that makes something easy, but it's really like what you explained. Like if you're really good at using this, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is a paintbrush. You know, mm-hmm. we've been painting in caves, you know, and that mm-hmm. that went well. You know, it's finger painting, whatever. But I'd say that I guess the paintbrush made it easy to paint, but it's not like you know, I'm trying to think of the mentality of people now looking at AI compared to the people looking at the paintbrush. I'm wondering if they'd be like, oh, you painted that with a paintbrush. Big deal. Yeah. You know, what I mean? <laughs> you see what well, I'm I mean, saying? Uh, yeah, I, I like you. Could, there's so many examples. Like I, I keep thinking of music, right? And like the revolution oh. of like digital tools and music or synths, right? That people Great who example. were adherence to the like guitar, bass, drums, vocals, you know, audio aesthetic of the 70s they're going to look at like you know someone using uh, a beat pad and say where's the craft in this like you don't even have to learn to play drums you just have to like be able to tap a thing with your fingers and that may be true for you know a generation of people that are growing up you know they go to i was gonna say radio city i don't know if radio city <laughs> still exists but they get this beat pad for 50 bucks and then they mess around with it but then you have people on the other end these incredible djs and producers who are able to make such advanced music with this thing and i'm sure that the people you know the in the 70s your guitar bass drums folks they were diminished by those who were into big band and you know the classical composers saying oh you think this is so easy you're going to do what we used to need an entire orchestra to do with four instruments it's just (laughs) yeah like you said it's it's the wheel of the thing right it just spirals and spirals and spirals yeah i just feel like in my mind that has to like what maybe it will die out i don't know but i think it's been kind of like if it's in a wheel it's never going away it's just like the propulsion the the entropy of it all um it's it's escalating but my thing is you know we as human beings have this element of like politicization of of this of these uh opposing ideas where we separate ourselves you know, um, I'm thinking, I was talking to my friend the other day, and he said that eventually there's going to be a complete distinction between the people who are, like, involved in this new technology and the people that just don't want any part of it. And then the people that mm-hmm. don't want any part of it will be essentially castaways. The people that are involved will be enjoying the fruits of it all. And um, there's a part of me that does believe that. And while I see myself on the side that I'd be embracing these new technologies, I I can't fully say that I'm looking forward to leaving everybody else behind. So, <laughs> you know, um, is it going to be like the technocrats versus the the app the 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 organ the the organic? tree huggers like i'm just trying <laughs> to the extremes here and um ironically i think we're all on this planet which is a mixture of both and we can't really like skim off the top really um but we do that to ourselves mm-hmm. you know we do that all the time i just don't know what it's gonna look like and um i think it's gonna be fairly dystopian i just don't want people to lose their lives over this stuff you know 
I don't know. It's a, yeah, that, that's a really interesting dist- distinction, right? These like organics versus the technocrats. Um, I don't think that it, I, I tend to be less on the extreme side of these things. You know, I think that like those who are involved in the fruits of AI will also be involved in the like the curses of it. And those who turn away, of course, will be, you know, unable to access either. I think it'll be far more people in the middle who are trepidatious, the slow adopters. I think the scarier the technology gets, the harder it is on the uptake. But, you know, I do think, however, there are some like risks for artists, especially artists in your position who are like working with creating data sets that are then going to be in theory ported out to be collaborated with by others. You know, I, I'm curious for your, from your perspective, like, do you feel any kind of like fear or trepidation over like putting your style, your soul into a data set that may be able to make, or should be able to make works that appear aesthetically quite similar and then can be used by anyone? Like, you know, how could somebody at first glance differentiate between something created using your data set and something created by you personally? You know what? This might come as a surprise, but I'm actually one of those few people that welcome that idea. You know, I'm actually really into that. Um, you know, I think it's beautiful in a lot of ways because it would show the extension and the impact, the influence of this idea that or that you know this idea that i had um takes on a life of its own and i think Mm -hmm. that's an important part for me in the creative process um i I believe in like intellectual property and all that and like protecting that but like the things that i agree um will be relinquished to others or you know open access i think I want to see that taken all the way. And with AI, I'm fully accepting of the fact that it is that thing. It is that Mm -hmm. thing that once I put this out there, you know, I I want people to engage with this thing and like expand upon the language, the vocabulary, um, Mm -hmm. rework it, interpolate it, you know, um, synthesize it. That sounds great to me. Um, I also work in music. So, I'm always sampling all the time. I'm blending different sounds. I'm really into collage. You know, I collage the works of other people, you know. Um, so for me to have a place in that process for somebody else, it means a lot more to me than people might expect or that somebody who doesn't do these things would understand, you know, because I know... I know that feeling of discovery and resonating with something and then kind of being able to build on top of that. Are there risks that you see to like over proliferation of one style or is it a complete net good all the way up? The risks that I see are it's capitalism's fault. You know, I look at the estates of some of my favorite artists and I see like substandard product. Um, or just kind of like product that just doesn't seem like this artist would be down for that. Like, I don't know when it gets out of control is where I see it just being like on everything in a way that just like, it's not meaningful and, you know, Mm -hmm. meaningful meaning, you know, you're just, you just throw it on there to to bump the price up. You just throw it on there to price up like, or just to like, make a couple bucks i don't know like 
when when it's when it's like that i have an issue with it when it's removed from the artists so the mm -hmm. artist created this thing and now it's out there now it's on a thing but the artist is over there or dead mm -hmm. and has no idea what's going on but then this thing that they created has been largely adapted to something else without any consideration that artists but that thing that they made is like right at the top and on the, on the surface um you know that's beyond appropriation because my favorite artist right now is richard prince and he 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 dances with appropriation all the time it's kind of just more disrespectful that you would kind mm -hmm. of just do it because you know <sighs> The reasons that I mentioned before, it just like I, I like things with layers, even if they're flat. You know what I mean? Well, it's like the um, it's like the you know, the Warhol's idea of like the worst fate for an artist is being reduced to iconography. You know? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The Campbell's suit cams, the Basquiat crowns on like coffee cups. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that scares me. That's that's what kind of scares me. Like that, you know, I don't want that. But if like your style, for example, right, if this is, you know, if, if you're buying and selling, if the market is buying and selling, not your artwork, but like your style in a kind of data set, right, in a marketplace for data sets, right, in a marketplace for aesthetics, that may be a solve to this, right, because you can't, you would be imparting into the creation mechanism itself, your own like respect for your craft, right? It's yes. the idea of like, like the screenplay being so good that it doesn't matter who's directing it. You can't like unseat the soul of the writer. Right? Yeah. There, there is in this ability to create the environment because that's what essentially what you're doing when you're like fine tuning these data sets on your work or anyone's work is you're creating not, you're creating the environment of something's creation. And I would, I have a tougher time envisioning that being appropriated for merchandising than, you know, a very easily, like easily recreated output, like a Campbell's soup can, right? You know, if you can get, distill Warhol's mind into something, then creating with it, you can't unmarry like the intent and the soul of the artist who went into that. Yeah. Um. You know what? It to me echoes the idea of a new art form being born, and we're mm -hmm. calling it AI art right now. But in a few years, I think we're gonna look at it as sort of this internetization of an environment that's dynamic mm -hmm. collaborative and um yeah there's certain artists right now working that i'm not sure if they're aware of it but their language is all-encompassing of a sort of philosophy that um every artwork that they make descendant of that idea it expands their world and i'm into the idea of world building now and um i i had this moment where i was like you know what i want to relinquish my title as uh uh whatever whatever people might tell me as and i just want to be a world builder but mm. then i realized <clears throat> there's so much pride and honor in just being able to call myself an artist but a world builder sounds cool though you know like I want to I want to wear that on a t-shirt. I don't know. Is that lame? 
No, not at all. I mean, listen, I'm a, I, I write like narratives, you know, that's my like passion. So as somebody who's very, I'm very interested in, in world building. Right. And I think like the best worlds that have been built, right. Whether we're talking the Tolkien's, the, you know, Frank Herbert's, the JK Rowling's, right. They create these worlds and then other people get to play around in them. Like I love fan fiction. I don't love reading it, but I love it as like an idea, right. That you get, you create a world that's so rich that others can then come into it and begin to like tell little stories from inside of it using like parameters that you created. And essentially that's what you're doing, right? When you're creating a data set, you're like creating the parameters, you're creating a map of this world, you know, rules for how the society functions. And then people are going in and they're playing with it and they're telling little stories from inside of it. Um, oh yeah, exactly. This role of contingency, the idea of an epilogue, you know, like what mm-hmm. happens after the book's done. You know, I, I yeah. think that's, that's something we naturally do once the book's closed, like what happens next? That's up to you. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty about um, the relationship between the, the the creator, the creation, and the person experiencing those two things. It's like your takeaway from it. Yeah, you're seeing everything differently, but you kind of you kind of adopt this thing like a little baby or like a mouse that you found, <laughs> and then you're going to the grocery store. Maybe you don't know it's like in your bag or maybe you're holding it in your hand. You're going through all the cheeses and you're going to go back home. I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. Do you see like a marketplace of data sets ever replacing a traditional art market? Like essentially like a generation of people being far more interested in the manner of something's creation and being able to, again, acquire that on a marketplace as opposed to just an output? I see that as a possibility. I think the way I see things, anything that doesn't exist that suddenly comes into existence has, you know, its potential to connect with an audience in a different way. And people will value that experience of having not experienced that before. Um, mm-hmm. Whether or not it's done correctly, you know, that's who knows. But if it's when it's done right, I think things like that tend to start new discussions and um, ways of thinking, which I think personally is priceless. You know, there's, of course, probably cons about a situation like that. But I think maybe anybody entering into that early on is kind of aware of those cons, but is more excited to kind of be a part of something new. And I think mm. we're all looking forward to that. Not not specifically the the marketplace of uh, of different models, but you know why not? You know, I think I'm looking forward to that. I want to play with other people's models. You know, I want to see. I it's like you're not only talking to the artists artists, but you're talking to this technology, and then being able to share that amongst other people. You know. Who knows? Uh, who knows? I can't wait. Yeah. Well, you know, I've begun to consider crypto art not as its own kind of like internalized movement, but more as this kind of like, it's almost like this hotbed for the birth of a community that is technologically adjacent that's going to be able to then make use of AI in really interesting ways, right? It seems, I sometimes think that like this whole movement was just a, the gestation 
of the place where these kinds of questions and these kinds of experiments with AI are going to take place, right? Because the blockchain was revolutionary as a distribution mechanism. Some people use it as a creative mechanism, but it's really the AI that's like, that's the creative revolution, whereas the blockchain is just the validation distribution layer. And I think about this a lot, like a, even just a conversation like this, which is necessarily like super out there. And it kind of requires understanding a whole host of the things that I think a lot of people in crypto art kind of intrinsically get because of their exposure to it. Like even just, I, I had this other idea of like, let's say somebody, you know, buys access to the Alec data set, right? And you're yeah. evolving it in real time, right? You're adding, you're moving, you're tailoring. And so people are literally along your artistic journey with you. And then they're able to produce outputs that mirror what you're into on a given day, right? You know, now it's like the bananas as your iconography, but maybe in two years that's changed, right? So there's still some bananas in it, but now you've discovered a new symbol, right? Now that enters into the data set and people are creating alongside you, right? It's this evolving, you're like, bring a school of fishes along with you, right? Or like a flock yeah. of geese that you're at the head of. And I think that there's just like, even just having these conversations, even just asking these questions, like I really do agree with what you said that like we're witnessing the birth of a new artistic medium, but it is going to evolve in ways that are so surprising that you know, we can only kind of half hint at. And I, I just, I think like what you and the rest of the artists with Koji are doing it's just the creation of an entirely new way of thinking about like what the purpose of creativity in the AI age is, even what it's going to look like. Yeah. You know, I think it's very special and I'm very honored to hear your thoughts on my practice and the practice of some of the people I'm working alongside. You seem to be like very aware and like, I think you're like really in tune with like what's happening. I talk about this a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love that you're using the word symbols so often. I think um, symbols kind of have been taking a stronghold on me and my practice. Um, I just had my generative artwork collection in which I'm using these symbols from my from my life and opting for randomization and scale, size, you know, mm. repetition. Now I'm stepping into AI using the same symbols from that collection and kind of world building with them. And, um, you know, also using them in my physical practice. It's, I think we all have symbols that constitute our identity. Yeah, the birth of like crypto art, the early, early crypto art, right? You know, the crypto symbols, right? The Ethereum symbol, the Bitcoin symbol, I mean, this launched the, the careers, at least in crypto art, of like Josie Bellini with the Bit, Bitcoin gas mask and like a lot of money would use these symbols uh -huh. all the time. Mohara would use these symbols all the time. Trevor Jones, the Bitcoin angel, right? Like it was very, very important. You know, Matt Cain's right place, right time was a, it followed Bitcoin symbology. Or I'm not sorry, I'm sorry. It followed like Bitcoin price action, but using that symbol. It was everywhere. You know, the, when Robness got kicked off super rare for the first time, it was for like... <laughs> basically just taking the Bitcoin and Ethereum symbols and just minting them on the blockchain. But like that symbology, even though I think we've lost it, a lot of the OG crypto artists will, you know, plant their flag behind, like this was an, a movement. Crypto art was originally rooted in these physical symbols um, that had meaning to the community at the time. So I think symbology is like, at least at the beating heart of crypto art, if not like, you know, was the place from which it all sprung. 
And I understand that. And I love that. And I wanted to continue that discussion. But then I found myself kind of wondering what my symbols are. Mm-hmm. Because the thing with symbols is like, a lot of times they'll be right next to each other. Um, but right next to each other could be outside and inside. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd be feeling like there's that symbol that I identify with because it's a part of my environment. But I have this symbol inside of myself that's there because I grew up with that one or, you know, I have personal meaning. But when you put them together, there's this sort of association that to me becomes an identity and to others becomes an image. And I'm really into like, I'm into exploring this and it's really taken control of like my whole practice and my life at this point. You know, I painted my car with these symbols. Um, <laughs> I kind of feel like the Riddler or something, but I, <laughs> I see it as like, um, we've been here before. We've been mm-hmm. here before. You know, like, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but in that cave, you know, I'm sure there was just symbols just all over the place, you know, like, from, and even biblically, the words, you know, these cert- these certain themes reoccurring and then seeing their place in pop culture, you know, I, I look at Marcel Duchamp and Andy Warhol as like, some of my inspirations as far as like creating imagery and symbolism or maybe mm-hmm. extracting it from the ether. <laughs> the ether, you know? Isn't yeah, that so funny? Yeah. Um, I feel like maybe we're in the symbolic generation or something. Like, I'm not sure if that rings true for anybody else, but I feel it. I taste it. I have this visual of like, percolating bubbles of likes and thumbs ups and emojis kind of just being the DNA of everything around us. Bro, the irony of having this conversation for those of you who are listening to this and not seeing it, but like you've had a check mark behind your head this entire time, yes. right? Talk about a, talk about a symbol that has taken on a life within like a community, right? And it is now way more than just a symbol in like, a blue cloud it is a marker of so many other things it is a marker of acceptance it's a marker of influence right like you've just been having this conversation with the emblem of that behind your head this whole time yeah for me i think it's a marker of authenticity like oh yeah that's mm-hmm. the right one or that's where it came from or kind of being able to you know it's a verified but um to kind of directly link the lineage of something. Um, And I think this symbol will take on a few different meanings over the course of the the next decade. Um, But for me, and I'm working with my team on this, it's, it's definitely something as a tool to ensure that something is what it is. Or, you know, I, I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> I'm trying to like gotcha. not give it that way. Let's wrap up here before uh, you end up inadvertently spilling some beans you don't want to spill. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Alex, man, this is an awesome conversation. You want to just? Uh, I, I appreciate. I, I've had a. This has been fantastic. Um, yeah. If you want, 
want to just take take a second and kind of tell everyone you know what you have going on or what they should know about you your work what's happening at the moment yeah well right now if i'm i'm just thinking like you know i'm really just into symbols right now and i actually have the opportunity to talk about my love for the verification badge in los angeles on february 27th through march 3rd yeah it'll be cool if you're there you just hit me up maybe you could come through but um i'm leaning into just exploring these symbols in my generative art collection and um through ai as well and throughout my different practices i had the banana now i'm at the verification badge i don't know where i'll end up next but the banana for me was the psychedelic pop symbol that invited the the consumer to to experience um an entirely different perspective for the duration of its ingestion also kind of referencing pop culture and music and um this idea of like immediate gratification when i think of bananas i think of like oh i'm so happy like i'm just eating a bunch of them um now the verification badge you know shout out to jack butcher i think we have a similar perspective on it but different whereas some people are more concerned about the verification badge and identity. I'm thinking of verification badge and lineage. Where is this coming from? The moment in time, the timestamp, removing it from a person and then putting it to the idea because I think of it as it's illustrated to me as a thought bubble where it's mm. a blue cloud it's almost imaginary you're you're thinking that this thing is real or verified um so yeah that's where i'm at right now and um i haven't been painting or drawing as much recently i've been really heavily leaning into conceptual art and just sort of internet performance and ai so stick with me i, I feel like i'm just going through this evolution right now and it's very exciting well, listen, man, I'm a big fan of your work. Everyone should check out Alec. That's at Alec, T-H, I guess, at A-L-E-Q-T-H. Yeah. You should check out his work if you don't know him. He's brilliant and his art is fantastic. And so are your ideas. And I appreciate you sharing them with us today. Thank you so much, Max. You're dope, honestly. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Um, yeah. If you enjoyed listening to the conversation today, please consider giving us a follow or a subscribe on Spotify or Apple, wherever you get these podcasts so you know when they come up. You're probably listening to this on a Friday or maybe soon thereafter. We got new podcasts coming every Tuesday and Friday, so please stay tuned. Please give our Substack a follow at museumofcrypto.substack.com. Please give Alec your attention. It's more than deserved. Would you say February 27th to March 3rd in Los Angeles? Yes, yes. Um, more details to come. Uh, I want to give you guys kind of like a radio shout out. Maybe you could use this. Mocha, Mocha, woo. Was yeah, that that's going in the, nah, I'm okay. going to put it in the cold open. The podcast is going to start and end with that. <laughs> I could have done it a little better. Uh, it worked out better in my head, but maybe we could do it again some other time privately. Just like, All right, sounds good, man. Okay. Yeah, we'll send, send me some samples. We'll get them on the audio track. Yeah, maybe. Alec, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll see everyone real soon. All right. See ya.
Thanks for listening to this podcast, everyone. It was edited and produced by me, Max Cohen. I would like to extend a massive thanks, of course, to Alec for being my fantastic guest. A big thanks, as always, to Julian Brangold for composing our intro and outro music, and to Day Fox for composing our cold open theme. We already know this is coming. The biggest thanks to you for listening. Uh, we appreciate you being with us so much, and we hope you continue to be with us for every possible subsequent episode of the Mocha Live podcast. We will catch you back here, same time, same place, real soon. Thanks once more. Take care. Mocha, mocha, woo!